Hey, do you remember your very first cave experience? Yeah. It was in a cave with a cave diving instructor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never really had any other cave experience other than that. Now, when I was a kid, I remember going to mammoth caves. Oh, you were, you're talking dry caves, too. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I'd been in a dry cave either until uh, after that. Yeah. Yeah, the old mammoth caves. Uh, where is that? Missouri or? Uh, Kentucky, I believe. Kentucky, that's right. Yeah, yeah. You never swam in any coral caves when you were <laughs> in Cozumel Those are not caves. Those are not <laughs> caves. I don't like when, uh, even when, uh, even when uh, I wasn't a cave diver, yeah, I'd been down to Cozumel. And, and even in the med, they had those little, you know, swim-through areas. Those were not, they were not caves. And I know there are caves but yeah most of what they're calling caves are just you know little swim through arches and there might be a little bit extended arch that you can see through the, the other side and everything but not caves in my book by definition of cave diving caves you know out of the sunlight right because there's zone. the there's the caves up in tobamori right which aren't they're not really caves well <laughs> it's it's um often people look at like you know the the cartoon scooby-doo cave of it goes in and stops you know yes 20 feet yeah as a as a cave but that's a little bit different than something that you have to have a guideline to yeah. be sure that you're getting home because you're actually in caves yeah i the uh the cave divers definition of caves is a little more uh, strict, I guess, as far as you're out of the sunlight zone. The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. Tech Market Grew. walk into any old dive shop and get a can light and a Hagarthian harness. Well, hey, listen, I've got an article here about the lure of cave diving. This is pre-Sheck Exley's blueprint for survival. Oh, really? Okay. And it's it about, by? It's by your old buddy, Bill Barada. Old oh, classic, Bill Barada, Billy. Old classic skin diver author. The old Billy Barada. Billy, 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 Billy. But often that first exposure to something so different and unique of those Florida springs and how inviting and beautiful they are, you know, a lot of people have that 
experience where the, they're riding right on the that pleasure pain experience, you know, inside them. <laughs> the pleasure pain experience. That sounds like ice diving. He he describes it as an invitation to agony or ecstasy. Ah, that lure of cave diving. Hmm. For a lot of people, it was just that. It's excitement, excitement, ecstasy, amazing, beautiful. Turn around. Oh, shit. How do we get home? Welcome back to the Great Dive Podcast, everybody. <laughs> You're here with your invitation to ecstasy, Jamesy. <laughs> and your invitation to agony, Brando. Agony. And it is week two of Intergalactic Worldwide National Cave Diving Month on the Great Dive Podcast. We're thanking you for joining us again. All right, so hey, listen. Hey, listen. Billy says, we swam downward along the lifeline. Did you ever call it a lifeline? They called it a Uh, lifeline back in the day. I never called that line my lifeline. I've... Nowadays, it's the gold line or the main line. Right, right, the main line. But they swam downward through a narrow, crooked passage, barely large enough to accommodate a fully equipped diver. The beam of my underwater light illuminated rugged limestone walls broken by sharp projections and dark fissures. This was strictly a one-way passage. I had to snake my way around bends. A few side openings were large enough to admit a diver. If we met another team of cave divers on their way out, somebody would have to swim backwards. I wondered how an aggressive person, conditioned to playing chicken in expressway traffic, he says, would react to a head-on confrontation in this underwater cave. It was no place to stage an argument over right away. So again, this is 1974, right? Right. When there wasn't the extensive amount of training. No, today. they they hadn't come up with the uh, you know the five rules and little little etiquette guidelines like you know exiting teams have right away kind of thing. Suddenly, we broke out of a of a tunnel, and I found myself swimming through a huge subterranean cavern. The lights no longer bounced off nearby walls, but rather the beams became narrow shafts that bored visual holes through solid blackness. At the end of these holes, the lights flickered over craggy walls and jumbles of mammoth boulders or disappeared into the darkness of yawning chasms and irregular fractures. We were swimming through a huge underground amphitheater with caves, crevices, and openings leading off in all directions. It's this guy trying to brush up on his writing skills. <laughs> Sounds like. Well, he's creating that that he's dramatic picture. That dramatic picture. Yeah. Again, so for readers of Skin Diver magazine in the nineteen seventies, before there was Sheck's rules and, and people were going swimming in these rivers in Florida and these beautiful spring openings in Florida and getting into trouble. I think he's describing it pretty well with, with how that 
first draws a lot of people in to just look a little bit further. How easy right. it is to get to a point where all of a sudden I go through this crack, I go through this fissure, it's tight, it's tough to get through. Wow, it opens up into this huge room where my light isn't even hitting the wall anymore. He says, for those afflicted with a vivid imagination, cave diving triggers mental visions that would fill a host of horror movies. Swimming in subterranean passages always remind me of the mythical river Styx, the dark foreboding waters that are supposed to flow through the bottomless world of the damned. For me, it's easy to feel the terror that must overwhelm a panic-stricken diver groping blindly among a maze of deadened passages in a hopeless search for a way out. And here he brings up old Dave DeSotos, founder of the National Association of Cave Diving. And he, the way he puts it, he says, is there is something about drowning in an underwater cave that sends horror chills up the spine. Dave should know. As a member of Florida's Sheriff's Underwater Recovery Team, he has pulled more drowned divers from Florida's caves than any other person. One of the original yeah. body, re body recoverers. Again, we, we bring this up from time to time about how being in a lot of these caves, you do continually go from environment to environment, like right. changes in the geology where you're going from twisting turning tight areas to big wide expansive areas right right yeah it's uh that view is constantly changing what what you see yeah that's one of the draws i mean it's never the same which is where the all the the need for the finesse and the technique is at with something like cave diving because you're you need to have that cleanliness uh, there's times when you're in very rocky areas with a ton of flow, and then the next thing you know, you're in something that's really soft and silty where you have to be extremely careful with right. the, the the thrust of any kick or, or any motion at all, really. Right, and that's where, you know, a lot of, uh, I think especially newer cave divers, they look at flow as the enemy kind of thing, right? It's... Um you, it takes some skills, it takes some practice, it's, and it actually takes physical work to get uh, your large mass past that, that flow, which is usually really high in the more restricted areas, areas just because of, you know, hydraulic physics kind of thing. But the, uh, the flow is also what keeps it clear so you can see. Um, when there's no flow and it gets stirred up, it just sits like that, especially in those, you know, those clay bottom places where people come in and stir that up, and that clay... Just sits. Yeah, well, the molecules actually bind to the H2O molecules, and uh, it sits there. It can be there for a month. Yeah, completely you know, blown out. And that's because there's no flow in those areas. It's You can't just wait for the viz to go back to be nice and clear and you can find the line and get your way out 
uh, you can't. You don't have months. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> you know. Right, right. Whereas in the high flow areas, if somebody stirs up a little sand or even if they stirred up uh, clay in those places, it would be blown out, you know, and dispersed. Which I know I've come across where I'm I'm diving through the cave and all of a sudden I'll just, you know, I'm in a high flow area, but I'll see, I'll see it coming. Uh, somebody cloud, up ahead of me, yeah, must have uh, had a little incident and you, you just wait for it to come through and get close to the line kind of thing. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, the flow is just blowing it out of there. But yeah, it's it's your your friend and a and an enemy, I guess. I don't know. Uh, that flow can can be hard to swim against, and it takes experience and and uh, good technique to really get past the downside of the flow. So, right, especially back in Bill Barada's days, right, the early seventies. Yeah, but they were. I mean, I mean going uh, going five hundred feet into right. into Ginny in seventy six. Right. Yeah, high, right. a very I mean, high flow a, cave, and yeah, no, they didn't have the the technique or the uh, equipment that we have now, which really streamlines the process. And the uh, the knowledge of using the technique has gotten out there. You know, using proper buoyancy control, and our idea of proper buoyancy control in in the cave diving world, I guess, and the <laughs> the rest of the world are complete are almost two completely different animals. You know, proper trim and buoyancy control and propulsion well, you don't, techniques. Uh, you don't d- use the Buddha position when you're going through the <laughs> lips on the way. Uh, I was waiting uh, for the Buddha position to be brought up because because it's in all the books. <laughs> where where you would use it, I have no idea where you use that. But we all were taught to teach that too. Bill says, in the massive water-filled cathedral with an eighth-inch nylon line guiding us to the exit, my imagination began to work overtime. Dave pointed to his pressure gauge and signaled that it was time to leave. Then we saw lights flashing in the one-way tunnel and realized other divers were on their way down. We had to wait. And I said a little prayer of thanks for the cave diver's safety rule of thirds. So again, nowadays there is an etiquette of you always yield to that exiting team for a situation just like this. Right. Right, you got the team going through, team coming out. Give those guys coming out of there the room and the time to exit. He says, we didn't have any trouble, but if any of this new gang got stuck or fouled up in the passage, we might need that reserve air supply. As I settled down against a boulder and waited quietly in the darkness, thoughts of some of the educational problems facing Florida cave divers filtered through my mind. Let me ask you: Could you could you say that um, the mentality of the typical open water diver in a situation would be that very thing? Thinking of yourself first, get through. You know, something like what was going on in the seventies, eighties, nineties, early two thousands of cave diving is where the concept of situational awareness really started to grow. In so much as a situation like this, you got to think about the others in the water for the for the betterment of everybody involved but if you're just so focused on yourself 
you're never even going to have that mental space to be able to think that clearly. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's all about getting those, I guess, skills and knowledge down so it's second nature. So cave yeah. diving being a different, a different game than open water diving, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> even Hell so yeah. much as just just the, the thinking and that etiquette that you have on a cave dive, which becomes necessary in right. a situation like this, is, is something that would never even dawn on the typical open water diver because you have the whole entire ocean to, to get around somebody if need be. But having gone through that training is going to change the way you even approach your open water dives. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I go out and would say that uh, a lot of people take cave diving classes, not to so much get into cave diving as uh, much as just hone their own skills, take them to a new level. And uh, yeah, those, that's why I took it. I mean, back in the day, I took it so uh, it would improve my open water skills. And um, I know the techniques and the, uh, the awareness needed to cave dive are great, great assets on your tool belt in open water, too. So, Bill says cave exploration is an entirely different sport than other types of diving, and a lack of general knowledge about its peculiar hazards has made it the most dangerous of all underwater activities. Everybody is aware that caves are dangerous. However, what is not realized is that unlike other hazardous diving conditions like surf and kelp and deep water and ice diving, which have built-in psychological barriers that warn off danger, most spring pools and sinks are as deceptively lovely and enchanting as a sorceress. (laughs) A sorceress. Yeah. Luring you in to her sorcery passages. <laughs> so one of the cool things I would say is you got that really awesome extreme change of perception on these dives, right? Where you got the, the big, beautiful, blue, open basin into that cavern, into the blackness when you fully get enclosed, it's almost like two completely different worlds on these dives. Right. Yeah. Once you go past the, the no light zone. Yeah. You're, you're on a different type of dive. Like coming out of Madison where you're in that dark piled up breakdown coming out into the open basin with all the fish all over the place, the green, the algae, the, the mm-hmm. beautiful blues and turquoise and the beams of sunshine coming through where, you know, 200 feet away, it's a completely different world. Right. And that's like an excitement. You like, you almost set yourself up for multiple phases of state of mind on these dives. Mm hmm. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. It's, uh, yeah, definitely entering a a different world once you get past that no light zone, for sure. Bill says diving into the crystal clear waters of a spring is like diving into a freshwater aquarium. 
Sunlight penetrating the blue water creates flickering shadows that dance across white sandy bottoms and float through graceful patches of green water grass. Clouds of fish dart and play in the pool. Their silvery bodies flashing in the sun like streaks of quicksilver. And sunlight penetrates deep into the clear blue water of the opening providing remarkable visibility far beneath the surface and inviting exploration of the cavern depths. So it's no wonder when you get into an environment like this, you're going to have that typical excited diver feeling. Not much different than being on a reef down in the Florida Keys or down in the Cayman Islands where you've got fish swimming around all over the place. The water's blue and you see that little crack. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's nothing like it. That little crack in the rock that invites you in and draws <laughs> draws you closer. <laughs> yeah, there is something about it. I uh you always want to just keep going just a little bit further. Like there's like as if there's going to be something completely different and new to to justify your curiosity once you get around that that corner. But you just got to go a little bit further. I know even turning the dives are difficult. And I, I mean, that's a discussion in and of itself is the reluctance to be the one to turn your dive on the, on the thirds or whatever gas rule you're using. And, you know, kind of being bummed like we were on a roll. We could have kept going, you know. Right. Even when you get you get close to that number, you get close right. to that time. And it's like, OK, uh, let's just go. We're gonna we're gonna go to the next line arrow. We're gonna go to the next. next <laughs> yeah, and then you get there like ah, yeah, we can squeak out. Let's just get around this corner up here. I, I know what you mean. It is difficult to make want to make that turn, or be the one that's got to make that turn. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, and that, that's probably also behind the you know the fuel or the incentive to to continue your training because you can uh, start to carry more gas. Uh, learn, you know, proper decompression techniques and, again, techniques to to further explore. I mean, all the way going up into the uh, rebreather status where people want to uh, be able to go and go and go with nearly unlimited gas supply, right? Yeah, because here in, in these days of 1974 from this article, like doing a thousand feet of penetration yeah was a big deal deal, big Mm -hmm. deal nowadays you know right you can you can get on a rebreather almost immediately and be thousands (laughs) of feet back on on very early in your career right right without having all that hard work of experience of of being difficult to get there for many many dives yeah and learning, I mean, there's an upside and a downside to that too, right? Going too right, quick, yeah. and we've spoken about that, and people going too quick and not gaining the experience, and that's uh, it's easy to do nowadays. I mean, again, rebreather training is readily available almost anywhere now, and if you got the money, you can you can go see the cave, hopefully. Well, yeah, right, right. <laughs> that, that's always that's always the uh, the caveat, right? Right, right. You can 
you can just strap yourself tandemly and and jump out of a plane at ten thousand feet with no skydiving <laughs> experience, right? right? Right. And hopefully, that guide's shoot opens for you <laughs> on your very first skydive, right? Or you can take, you know, years of skydiving lessons to learn how to do it all yourself. That eventually gets you up to a dive like that, but I, I get the 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 draw that so many people, right? They they just want the rush and the excitement of it. Yeah. Right. And I think that's what Bill's describing here is that's that lure of the cave, right? And uh, I I think what we're gonna find out is you also have to have that appreciation for the agony side of it. If you really want the balance of, of the the ecstasy, <laughs> he says the peace and tranquility is the deceptive, is the deception of the caves, which lures divers to their deaths. An apparently simple and safe penetration into the quiet, clear water of the tunnel can be instantly converted into a terrifying nightmare. Serious trouble can develop from hundreds of seemingly simple causes he mentions one phenomenon of the caves is the high percentage of multiple drownings where two three and even four divers in a group all perish at the same time for cave divers the term buddy takes on increased significance and new meaning because no diver in a group is any safer than the weakest member yeah and yeah, this th- is right. This is 1976 that we're we're getting this lesson. Well, I think they had it even before that. I think any you know a military diver in the 60s, 50s, they all know the 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 whole debate. Like we we were just talking about, buddies are bad, teams are good. So this whole using that that term buddy is you know yeah i it's introduced in open water and the buddy system because uh i guess that kind of rolls off the tongue but right and um, you have to have uh you have to dive with a buddy we we looked at uh just a couple of weeks ago with with our incident of you know the two buddies doing their advanced class right you know with the the instructor sitting on shore right we had uh, we saw how that ended up right so well the, this is like usually the first time where the concept of a teammate, like a yeah. real teammate, comes apparent. Right. The, and again, that that term "buddy," it just it quote unquote the buddy system. I think that came out of the military. Uh, we use the buddy system kind of thing where you're supposed to work as a team versus just getting quote unquote buddied up with somebody which means you two are diving together you're not really diving as a team together you're just diving in the vicinity of each other so yeah yeah, like in in open water the term buddy means right it's highly unlikely that anything's going to go wrong because you have all the top of the line gear on right but just in case you should swim around with this guy with a Air McDoodle on and the unlikely event that you need to use it, that's completely different than the concept of what a buddy is on a cave diving team. Right. A symbiotic type relationship, a team member. What's a, what's the difference between a, a team and a buddy is that the team works together well. The buddies are just two people diving together in the same area, you know, 
hopefully within eyesight of each other. But um, yeah, the, the the cave diving community is much better than the open water diving community uh, in regards to that that term. You, applying you know, applying teaming. that term, right? Right. But there, I don't I don't think they're. I don't think it's like throughout the community as a majority. A lot of them still will quote unquote buddy up and jump into a cave. Dave says a buddy breathing rescue in open water usually only requires making it straight up to the surface. It's a lot different inside a cave where you may have to drag a kicking, clawing, panic stricken diver through hundreds of feet of lateral tunnel. Experienced cave divers, Bill says, have learned to control panic, but panic is an ever-present specter for novice divers in caves. And while waiting in the quiet of the subterranean chamber, I recalled some of the strange incidents Dave and other cave divers had encountered. Hmm. Now, you've, you've probably, if you've gotten to the level of full cave certification in the 2020s the the panicky diver has probably been weeded out to a certain extent the just the jittery i mean because you practice so much with being able to air share and how important it is to maintain your breathing and your composure when you really do air share Mm -hmm. like i think a lot of people in open water they're taught an air share means Oh shit! Get this regulator <laughs> to them and get to the yeah, surface and leave. Right, yeah. and they'll blow through safety stops. They'll just—it's just get up to the surface. It's not. There's not a lot of thought that goes into the maintaining the ascent, maintaining the exit, which is the most important part, and having the gas planning to do it. Whereas when you go through cave training, you're going to find out that if there is a time to be the most calm and collected. It's realizing that you only have that last third to work with. Yeah. You can't be a panicky, jittery, clawing diver. That's the time where you have to be your most squared away in reality. For sure. I mean, uh, that's when, uh, what's that, the rubber meets the road kind of thing? I don't know. Yeah, and I would say that over the last two decades, I think that thinking entering into the open water world is a lot where the open water game is starting to change right there's a lot of people teaching like you and i have for a long time now this idea of hey just because we had this emergency doesn't mean you just get to bail on being underwater you still Mm -hmm. have to finish the dive (laughs) right and we're cave diving becoming a full cave diver means that you've also learned a lot more about you're going to have some limited decompression on really every dive. It's not just do a safety stop if you can fit it into your buoyancy control at the end. If not, uh, we've hedged the numbers in your favor, so it's no big deal. It's different in cave diving, knowing that you've still got to get out in a controlled way regardless of what has happened. Right, yeah, seeing how, you know, most of the north-central Florida Caves are in the 100-foot or greater, you know, range. They're in that area, 90, 100-foot average depth. Um, there are some shallower ones, but for the most part, it's it's 100-footer. And so you you do have to do that, that decompression uh, coming out. 
versus those Mexico caves, which are you're going to average 20 feet kind of thing for several hours and still good to deco a little bit. But yeah, you got to think about that coming out. It's not just a straight exit. Uh, there's many details that have to be worked through versus that open water. Yeah. Now he goes on to describe a couple of different incidents that old Dave was telling him about. Like while two rescue divers were untangling a victim from his own safety line, another unknown diver came charging into them, mouthpiece out, dangling uselessly with wild eyes and strained face, clawing frantically for a regulator. He got one, tried to breathe from it, then dropped it. He repeated the performance with other divers' regulator, then swam rapidly away and disappeared into the depths of the cave. Yeah, because there's some more. I heard there's a dive shop back there you can go get a fill at, and I don't mean to be sarcastic. It's, I mean, that alone right there happens so often that you hear about it. I mean, you hear people being found dead, and they got plenty of gas in their back gas uh, they go to try to share gas with people. People give them their rags, and they can't breathe from it. So what do you think's going on there? Right, right. That is, that is the, the, the craziness of, of, the, of going into panic. Right. Well, it, it's a, a CO2 buildup. Right. That's huge. I mean, we talk about CO2 a lot. Cave divers really need to talk about it because even with good technique, you're going to build CO2 going through tight passages with a lot of flow. And that's usually in the entry to the cave. Um, and sometimes it's even further back in. Uh, but you're going to build up carbon dioxide. And if you don't recognize it and it's signs and symptoms, you're going to run into something like this. You're not out of gas. You feel you're out of gas. Right, Nobody, right. And even, right. In a, even in an area that is... Not that you're fighting flow, but the the environment changes up, down, left, right, yeah. angles where in open water you can have just a floppy, flailing, useless kick. You're going to move forward and go in a direction where you can see another piece of coral or fish or something. If you don't have technique and you're trying to maneuver through that area, it's going to be exhaustive. Or your other choice is you're destroying the environment, Mm -hmm. which neither of which works. So you have to be able to manage the body mechanics to manage the CO2, to be able to manage the breathing, to be able to stay calm. Right. And again, the knowledge to recognize when things aren't going right in that department, you know, when that CO2 is building up, you got to stop. He, okay, so he says here that uh, the panic, panic diver's body was recovered later with several hundred pounds of air still left in his tanks. And his regulator worked normally. Why couldn't he breathe? Or thought he couldn't? Is anybody's guess. He mentions here back in these days, right? Right. And we're all very well aware now what this issue is. I think they were aware then. He says, such unusual incidents are not unusual in cave diving. 
The bodies of two diving instructors were found in 135 feet of water in a sink. Both divers' regulators were out of their mouths. Both had air left in their tanks. One diver's face mask was pulled off, and both regulators worked normally. What happened? A fight? A buddy-breathing fiasco? Narcosis? Such questions remain unanswered. Hmm. And getting lost and getting scared and, and elevating your breathing rate, especially this here in 135 feet of water at five adders of pressure where you're now working and building up that CO2 five times. That is just like kerosene on the panic flame. <laughs> it's at the root of it, yeah. I mean, you can't think straight with CO2 cursing through your blood. He talks of a 1967 tragedy at Jenny Springs, the worst cave diving tragedy on record there, where Dave and a couple of these other rescue divers had found the bodies of three divers wedged behind a pile of boulders only 300, only 300 feet back in the cave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, back in that day. That was way back. I mean, yeah. Because to get 300 feet back, you're either going down through the ear, which is a straight drop down and then into a twisting, turning fight, or more likely crawling through at the eye till you get into an area where things start to open up. But there's a lot of lefts and rights and twists and turns where you could easily get lost along the way Mm -hmm. and he says that it took five days of searching to find the fourth diver his body was lodged in a small crevice far from his buddies dave's report to the sheriff's office stated that one none of the four had previous cave diving experience and only one had done previous diving of any kind two all of them were in single tanks with no submersible air gauge and went beyond their limits Three, he says, the four divers had only two lights to share between all of them. And four, they were using a polypropylene water ski rope, which floats and is a no-no for our safety line. They didn't use a reel, which also invited to their entanglement. It's like those old in Jacques days, right, where they just had 300 feet of line wrapped (laughs) wrapped around their, like, hand and elbow, like a extension cord right yeah he talks about a 1972 experience where two open water divers drowned in little river where tom mount old famous tom mount found one of the divers in the lighted area of the cave almost within sight of the opening the two others were just around the bend where if they'd come just a little further out, they could have made a free ascent on empty tanks, like shooting out that last that last little shoot at Little River, right? Mm-hmm. One diver only had 350 pounds of air in his tank. Another one had his head up in an air pocket, had drained the air from a buoyancy compensator tank. I'm assuming that means like the little buoyancy jug. <laughs> he says uh, he says the other was in a lighted area of the cave closest to the entrance get this had a knife wound in his stomach the divers had no safety <laughs> line what the hell's going on 
Well, that's what he says, right? He says, like, the knife wound speaks volumes. Only desperation or self-defense could make an experienced diver attack his buddy with a knife. I mean, none of us really knows what happened in that blackness of that underwater river sticks. Now, he, he mentions that Dave says, many would say that this is an example of the buddy system and it's failing in the worst form. However, it is probably more a compounding of many errors made by divers in their attempts to keep up with each other. Right, the, That early inexperienced diver that falls prey to peer pressure and, you know, that being those uh, 20-year-old, nothing-can-hurt-me uh, kids. You're invincible, man. Right. I'm yeah. not even a diver. Yeah, I'll go cave diving with you. I'm not going <laughs> to be the one that, yeah. that says no, right? And he goes on to talk about Jacques' dive in the silent world that we talked about, you know, at Vaucluse. He talks about caves in the United States like Devil's Hole and Jacob's Well outside of Austin, Texas. Talks about uh, all the different springs and sinks in Florida, you know, that uh, nearly a thousand of which, you know, in all these different areas have drawn divers to all these issues. And even back then in the in the 70s, he's saying that each year an estimated 100,000 divers are attracted to the springs and caves in Florida. And each year more divers are added to the drowning statistics, particularly mm-hmm. here, just open water divers thinking that, you know, what I learned in my, you know, back then it <laughs> might have, it might have been a, a 10 or 12 week class even. Right. But still it, it wasn't focusing on any of the needs of what later would become cave dive training. Bill says cave diving has been the orphan of the diving fraternity an unwanted duckling that diving organizations have either frowned upon or have ignored in the hope that it would quietly disappear. And that hadn't really changed much in the decades after this article, even so far as to less than 10 years ago before everybody really started to jump on. Yeah. Right, the, the jump on the value of what cave training can do. And what cave equipment can do for diving in general. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, word had to get out. Other people who had been cave diving had to venture forth so other people could see, hey, these guys, they got something going on here. We got to check it out. He says much of this attitude is due to the fact that safe cave exploration requires highly specialized equipment which is not generally available for manufacturers or in dive shops. For many years, cave divers had to make their own. Also, safety in caves calls for strict adherence to a unique set of rules and precautions that are foreign to other types of diving and unknown to diving instructors other than those familiar with caves. And he says, last but not least... Safe cave diving requires a special type of training that is beyond the scope and ability of the average instructor because no amount of pool practice can substitute for the actual underground environment. Yet, sure. for, yet for years afterwards, we would still see right uh, that level of arrogance maybe that you get from being an instructor and you go into these new worlds, be it a, a cave 
thinking that because you're an open water instructor, you should be able to handle it or, you know, the shipwrecks right in our own backyard of, of instructors that went inside wrecks that got lost. And I think a lot of, I'm, I'm trying to put my mind into the, into the mind of, of a diver, even a dive instructor in the, the mid seventies reading this article in skin diver magazine, which was like really the magazine you know, back in these days. Yeah. If you were a diver, you had this magazine. Everyone did. Yeah, there weren't many others. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody had magazines lying on yeah. the coffee table in the in the 70s. Yeah, but there it's weren't many like, divers either. Right, but if you were a diver. Yeah, you had that, yeah. You had a skin diver subscription, no doubt about it. And, and I, I think it's so easy to get that draw and that excitement of, like, wanting to check out those springs and he's i think he's doing a good job bringing to light that hey man fyi it's a completely different animal and i think for so many years i like how he said that it was you know the ugly duckling of the diving fraternity and i think for so many years so many decades Mm -hmm. after this article even uh it was held as only the crazies go do that only well, the yeah. weirdos yeah, go do yeah. that cave diving stuff. Who do you think's nowadays, behind all that? Uh, well, well, but nowadays that like that that's starting to change. It, well, yeah, been, because you can make money off change. of it, James. Not because of anything else other than you can make money. It was a, you know, it was an effort to keep people from dying because that type of diving people died at because they weren't getting good training. There wasn't really good training available either. But well, is it because, well, that's just so much of a different animal that is the bastard, redheaded, stepchild, ugly duckling of scuba? Or is it that, no, actually, that should be the basis of beginner education. Cave diving? Yeah. If all education stemmed from that, would divers not be better prepared? Well, yeah, but I mean, we we get into that, right? That so I think that's debate. where the right. I think that's where the two schools were were diverging back then. Is one school was saying, "Let's keep sport diving, sport diving, and cave diving something completely different." Yeah, and I think the people that grew up cave diving are saying, "Well, if you just learn diving like this, like yeah. our cave diving way, you're prepared really for." Any diving. Well, I agree with everything you're saying. I just think, you know, I think it was pushed down or, or repressed or shamed or whatever. You know, they were the, as you put it, the stepchild of the the dive community solely because they didn't want to lose divers to that. Right. You know what I mean? Just like tech diving was the stepchild. You know, when I say tech diving, I'm talking trimix and things like that. It and cave diving is tech diving. It's the epitome of tech diving, and it's frowned upon, or it was frowned upon, by the mainstream agencies, the big agencies. And I, my thought would be, even back then, it was being frowned upon, just like they did to nitrox, the exact same thing. Yeah, there's a fear of the unknown. Well, it's a fear and- of losing money. Give me a break. Correct. Yeah. Yep. And it's so much. Well, <laughs> yeah. that that's the the interesting discussion, right? In my opinion, is 
it's so much easier to just like push it away, ignore it, hope it goes away, mm-hmm. rather than trying to learn from it and grow the whole entire community. I think they shunned away from things for so long, but it was only going to be a matter of time till we get to the days of where we are now where it's yeah. been fully embraced. And could this just have been fully <laughs> embraced back in 1976? Sure. And like, what would have happened? Like, where would diving be today if they didn't if fight these, it? If these, you know, types of diving weren't considered the ugly orphan, unwanted, ugly duckling? Right. They were actually embraced. Yeah. Well, I mean, it opens up uh, communication lines, and the education system would be would have been affected in a positive way. I mean, you, I you fully have, believe it would be a positive way. Yeah. yeah. Incredible divers. I mean, you gotta, there's no argument that the divers going into cave diving and deep, deep mix and deep tech have refined their skills way past the open water diver, way past even the good open water divers. They're not even in the same, you know, ballpark. So, yeah, both of them getting together, it would have, uh, actually opened up a whole new world education would have changed for the better hugely hugely yeah because you would have a consistent model from beginning to end also right i mean that's the cornerstone of the agency i teach for is you want the end goal right it's got to work at the at the right deepest darkest furthest place you could possibly be and how do we scale our education back all the way to the beginning of this is how you spell scuba, right? And we're going we're gonna to make it work here, mm-hmm. but also so that as you keep continuing and growing and changing environments and getting deeper and getting into overhead, you don't have to relearn everything. Or buy a whole bunch of new – I mean, you're going to have to buy new gear, but at least not all it's of consistent. it. It's <laughs> consistent. You're not yeah. – you're not going to have to relearn how to airshare. Oh yeah, you learn the you learn the right way at the beginning, so that when you got to that level, you didn't have to redo it all. In other words, the fundamental essential skills <laughs> for open water diving are the exact same fundamental essential skills for cave diving. Absolutely, that's how it it could have been. It could have been that way had they not, you know, been like ah these fuckers. We don't want anything to do with them. They're they're bad. If they come into my shop, I'm going to kick them out. You know, that kind of mentality, I have to believe it's still going on out there in certain well, places. Well, it certainly is. You, yeah. There are certainly old old school dive shops that shun away from any sort of technical diving. Mm-hmm. There's shops that have a strict, we do 60 feet of water. Yeah. On our Caribbean trips, we don't even promote cold water diving. Right. Why would anybody go dive in a local lake? I mean, that that exists here in the Midwest still to today. Yeah, I guess my thing is always, what's the harm in, in embracing both ideologies or both diving groups? Uh, I, I don't understand it. Could you imagine owning a bicycle shop <laughs> and, and then in, yeah. in 1990 saying, Ah, oh, we're not doing any of those mountain bikes. Bikes, those, yeah, those crazy. We're those crazy mountain bikes. bikers. We're not going to have anything to do Nothing with them. Nothing but Schwinn 
Stingrays. What, what was the? Well, you I, get a, get, the <laughs> I don't care what you want. You're getting a ten speed. God damn it! That's right. The Schwinn Varsity. Right. I mean, all of those bicycle shops would number one. They'd all be out of business because the mountain bike completely revolutionized mm-hmm. bicycles. Mm-hmm. Right, and it, and it became the new basis for how any bicycle is made. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's the, along the same lines here, brother. It's all the same. It's uh, people get, I don't know if they're fearful that I, like this new type of diving is going to put me out of business or so they try to condemn it. I, I don't get it. I I don't buy that it's about, you know, people getting injured. I don't buy that at all. But. Well, Bill says here, you know, as he continues on that cave diving can be performed safely as demonstrated by thousands of divers who enjoy this sport every weekend of the year. The National Association of Cave Divers has members who make 2,000-foot penetrations in perfect safety, right? This is in the 70s, right? right. So the, you're dealing with the same issues. Yeah, people are dying, but it's it's not the trained divers who have grown doing things the right way, building the proper experience having the appropriate equipment it's the inexperienced people that are going beyond their knowledge and ability they don't understand gas management they don't understand team cohesiveness and awareness in the water they don't have that right that's why they get into the the trouble Bill mentions that the NACD has developed a number of informational papers dealing with cave diving rules, equipment procedures, techniques, and statistics, which they urge other divers and instructors to obtain. Such information is no substitute for training courses um, any more than reading a diving instruction manual can prepare you for scuba. But he says, with this information, open water divers will be aware of the uniqueness of cave diving and perhaps at least will know when they're making a stupid mistake rather than hiding from it and ignoring it and pretending it doesn't exist. Right? He's saying back in the 70s, we got to let people know about it. And I think this, that's where this article did a great job. He says, such a project is badly needed and should be supported as vigorously as any type of diver training. Word. <laughs> what do you want? So why is it then that nobody heard Bill's call back then? Well, it's not like today where, <laughs> where communication is vastly different <laughs> and superior than it was back then. And the number of divers... You know, strictly the number of diamonds, the, the demographic was small. It just there wasn't a lot of people doing it, so nobody's hearing about it. You know? That's right. A, I think that's a huge part of it. Well, I mean, so had Why people did... had people listened who were figureheads in the in the industry listened to Bill and read his article back then, would the educational model have changed in a way that proper gas management was taught at the open water level by 1980 rather no. than the beeping computer was taught no by i'll go out and you know what no. i mean you know no. where i'm going yeah i hear where you're going but i don't believe anything i mean <laughs> the people calling the shots as far as education and the education system are I don't even think they're divers, you know, what I would what I would classify as divers. Sure they might be certified, but it's more they're more lawyers 
and quote unquote educators. They're not not divers per se in the mainstream agencies. Maybe it's changing a little bit nowadays because we have a couple of agencies that started up by hardcore real quote unquote divers. And they don't have a team of lawyers either dictating. So they're they're designing their courses and education system based on diving. <laughs> right. Whereas diving. when you look at when you look at what happened in the the explosion of scuba in lawyers. the in the late 20th century, yeah. it was based around <laughs> traveling, was the- <laughs> traveling and diving shallow reefs yeah. in the Caribbean was where the, the bulk of the growth really happened. And that's what the, you know, the diving community was based around that. And that was the marketing community, scheme. Yeah, yeah, it was all marketing. I'm with you 100%. It that was, was the all marketing, marketing scheme. And, the only, and the, the only thing the agencies were worried about was protecting themselves from lawsuits. So instead of having divers design the courses, and which would be a course, you know, actual diver would say, I don't want to relearn everything. At every step of the road, well, this is crazy. It's stupid. Throw out all my guild gear and get different gear. And I can't use those fins that I learned in. I have to use a different set of fins. And, oh, the snorkel that I never needed in the first place, I, I can't even actually have it with me in the cave because it'll be a hindrance, a bigger hindrance than it is in open water. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it was all about lawyers uh, trying to protect the big company or the corporation of an agency. That's it. That's at the root of why everything was slowed down. They fought it. And, and I mean, yeah. the, evidence, the evidence is, you remember, I mean, we lived through it. The, the nitrox stuff, that's the evidence. That's like the smoking gun right there. They, they showed their hand in the sense of, it's not about diving people. It's about how much money we can make. Right, because otherwise they wouldn't have taken 12 weeks of, of education and cut it down <laughs> to, to a weekend to, to a weekend right if it wasn't about numbers like there right. was a time in this in the 70s and even still and, and he's he's bringing to light here that even still you're not prepared for cave diving right when you were going through 12 weeks multiple days a week of instruction back in these days to become just a basic certified diver now had had Bill's idea like really taken hold and they turned that 12 week program into something that was consistent with going deep, doing like a real deep dive training, going into wreck diving, deep technical diving, cave diving, that it was a linear, consistent path rather than a completely separate entity. I think the the foresight that Bill was having is, wow, we could have a much better overall program. Mm-hmm. He says here that the prime attraction of the caves is the same for any type of diving. They have their own special beauty and mystery, and they provide a challenge and satisfaction found in few, if any, other sport. He, he goes back to uh, his early dive that he was describing that as i watched the last of the oncoming divers leave the confines of the tunnel the beams from their powerful lights joined ours illuminating the spires pinnacles and convolutions of an underwater cathedral with natural artistry and sculptures that rivaled any fashioned by the hand of man and in closing says that my pressure gauge 
read 900 pounds as I followed the guideline out of the exit, and I thanked my good fortune in having friends such as Dave DeSotos, Tom Mount, and others in the NACD who have made such an experience possible. Without the company and cooperation of men such as these, I would not have enjoyed the thrill and satisfaction of even a modest penetration of this ethereal underwater vault. Now, I would have to say that from that point on, his diving changed. Yeah. Every dive he did. Mm-hmm. A oh, shallow yeah. 30-foot reef, a deep wall dive, or if he got back to cave diving, that experience learning from Dave and Tom changed his view of what diving was. I'd agree. I think that's what you were saying earlier on, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, the cave diving course will definitely be a major point of uh, improvement in your diving. It'll be a major change, a major delta point in your little graph of how your diving career goes. For the positive. Yes, for the positive. I guess I guess a lot of people out of this little, little episode are going to get, you know, our our uh, di- uh, cave diving fanboy kind of mentality and that's what they'll take from it give me a c <laughs> give me an a yeah give me a v but i mean there's just <laughs> i don't know when you look back at your diving career and the different in the different classes or or you know types of diving you've gotten into would you say that cave diving was the biggest uh contributor to to promoting the way you dive right now did you take cave before yeah, you took tech? So, I mean, I, I well, took tech before cave, but I, those tech classes I took in the beginning were, were, <laughs> were not focused on technique so much as like in cave and not focused so much on situa- situational awareness as they were in cave. Well, uh, okay, so... Th- those are huge. Yeah, is that not true? Like in the 90s, there was sport diving... Yes. There was cave diving. Then there was this other um, ugly diving. duckling that was yeah. growing, which was tech diving, that, that East Coast deep wreck yeah. tech diving, um, which was yeah. another bastard child. But when yes. those two like those two started to merge, the tech diving and the cave diving started to merge in <laughs> mentality and thinking back in like the mid to late 2000s. Or even in right. the late nineties, they start. Yeah. I mean, James, but I think you, you're you're sugarcoating it by saying the they started to merge the battle between the North Florida cave divers and the East Coast wreckers was like World War Four. It was like you know two planets oh, going against now, each other. When I other. say merge, <laughs> I'm not saying that there wasn't a couple of yeah. accidents on the entrance ramp. You know, was, yeah, they. Uh, there were the, definitely collisions. The uh, I remember just watching them go back, or I shouldn't say watching, reading about them going back and forth. You know, you go on the forums, you go to, on the the BBS boards, and they would just be brutal to each other. And each one claiming, you know, we've got the secret. We know we've got it all. We we've we know it all. Well, However, yeah. I think and there the was perfect, there was ten there was ten different secrets. Right. I think that there would have it would have been a great marriage had they spoke to each other. Uh, No doubt about it. Instead of egos clashing, 
most of the time, you know, I've got this and then you guys don't know what the hell you're doing kind of thing. Yeah, but and for would, a lot of those agencies today though, yeah. right, they're the marriage did occur, right? The the Yeah. As as far as like the equipment configuration for the tech class is not really different than the configuration for the cave class. Not now it isn't. Not now it that, isn't, right? But but, but, there's, but there's still and then some of those agencies that were based in that mentality have also merged that thinking into how they teach a basic sport diving class right. as well. Right. Whereas the other agencies that started on the sport they're having a rough there, time. There's, there is no <laughs> consistency to the no. end. There's a, there's a couple of big changes you're going to have to make as you approach that end. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I'm I'm a lot more critical of those in my own you know thoughts and diving of those agencies that were open water diving agencies that fought the tech and cave, and then when they they got smacked in the face with a giant wad of money, they said, oh. We didn't know what we're saying. We take it all back. And then they start backpedaling and, and coming out with classes that from a tech diver viewpoint, from a cave diver viewpoint who learned from some greats, they look at those classes and go, that is a mess of a class. That, that class is designed by either lawyers or just some uh, people who looked at some, some tech divers or cave divers and said, okay, here's what we need to do. But real, realistically speaking, it's they're not great. Yeah. Yeah. Here's what we need to do to get their money and take them on a reef dive in 30 feet of water. Right. Well, that's the mentality. But now we can say, now here's what we need to do to get their money and get them in a rebreather as fast as possible and down to 150, 200 feet of water or get them in open circuit down to 200 feet of water. And, you know, we're not going to emphasize technique not like the other people do, because they're mean. They're like drill sergeants. We're nice. Yeah, it's okay if you're, you know, humping the dog a bit and and you you've got three or four wings on. That's fine. We actually recommend double redundancy. Right. There's is that, a, there's is that a, such a word? Double. I redundancy? would say the the big <laughs> difference is the 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 line between equipment Ex- versus technique is the yeah. Well, that's a big part of it. I I uh, I just say it's quality. I I just say it's the people who designed the course were actual explorers and pioneers in tech and cave diving versus the people that ex- that are designing the course are m- mainly influenced by a team of lawyers. That's my bitch about it. And if you took both, you know, I can sit here on my my high and mighty throne and say, I've taken both sides of the courses. I've taken those mainstream classes and I've taken the, I guess you'd call them more elite classes. At least they're more stringent. <laughs> Is that, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, they don't have a high pass rate. Yeah. yeah you've experienced, you both know, sides. both sides firsthand. And that's why, that's where I get off with my, you know, high and mighty, discussion here which some right. people you've would done, criticize you've me. done both yeah. you've you've done the ymca group karate class <laughs> and and you also have seeked out mr miyagi and became the karate kid like you've you've done both you've done both done sides both. so you can speak clearly with with an understanding of both right and i never that's never... why you're so valuable to the people of the great dive <laughs> podcast brandon 
<laughs> yeah, but it never fails that when you're discussing with somebody who's never tried uh, the more stringent elite side of things. Should we uh, should we wrap this one up? Yeah, let's wrap it that's up. Because that's the end of Bill Barada's article, The Lure of Cave Diving. I thought a nice way to, you know, kind of ease in, you know, after, uh, you know, this week two, easing into week two of cave diving month. That right. lure, that taste. But we see how beautiful it is and how dangerous it can be and how valuable the instruction is. Right? Bill Barada was telling the people of the scuba community this in 1974. Um, and I think what we've learned is that if you just start with that end in mind and rebuild the instructional model around, hey, it has to work at this end goal, mm-hmm. is there a way we can start right from the beginning with those same values of yeah. good buoyancy control, trim and propulsion, balance, awareness, awareness. Yeah. Gas management. Proper equipment. Yeah, decompression knowledge, which was not completely different than the thinking of the 12-week program in 1970, whatever, right? But they just, they veered off into two different ways. And and I think there's Mm -hmm. people like, you know, myself and how I've been teaching. There's a lot of people like me that have restructured their program years ago Mm -hmm. for an idea of there's a consistent way to do it from beginning to end. Well, James, it's about building a pyramid, not a bunch of little piles of rocks, right? Right, yeah, or yeah. bricks or whatever you want to say. So you, you, that basis, that base of the pyramid is the fundamental skills. And if you have to, okay, you start getting your fundamental skills, you go to the open water class and there's your pyramid. And then you say, oh, I want to go into a little more advanced diving. I want to get into, you know. just touch into the trimix level or recreational trimix or whatever. Well, now you've got to take that pile of bricks that you were working on building a pyramid with and toss it aside and get it, start a new pyramid, right? And you maybe, maybe you can move up there, but again, you'll get that pyramid going saying, okay, now I want to go into cave diving. Well, go start a new pyramid versus what you do. What I used to do, what people, uh, there are a lot of people that still do this, they realize the fundamentals are the same for wreck diving, cave diving, and open water diving. The fundamentals should all be the same. And that's the, again, uh, the fundamentals of technique. So when you're taught yes. technique, and this is the big differentiating concept, in my opinion, is if you're taught technique, it's never going to fail you. Right. If you're taught equipment, you're going to run out. Every you're going to run it to its end, right? You're right. going to get to the end of it where it doesn't work anymore. So now you're going to need new equipment to get you to the next level. Whereas if if you have the base technique of what's needed at the end goal, well, it works for everything. Right. And that's part, I mean, that's part of our philosophy is we don't want to be switching equipment all the time. We want equipment that works all the way through for the 99% of the equipment you use. But... Yeah, I mean, looking at the two different schools of thought and where you want to go with your diving, I, I, in my mind, there's only one route. You know, I want my fundamentals to be the same fundamentals as when I go into tech diving, as when I go into cave diving, as when I'm in open water. They're all the same. And it's just to the degree that you hone them. Yeah, you know, yeah. beautiful. So. 
That was an invitation to some ecstasy right there at the end. I tell you, <laughs> there was a little bit of agony early on, like old Barada says. What do you think, people? Was that an invitation to agony or ecstasy? What is your lure of cave diving? Let us know. Send us a message. That's going to wrap up week two. No, so- no logbooks to be signed. We're, uh, no, we're, we're still on diving. A, we're on a, we got two more weeks of this dive, people. <laughs> All right, everybody. We will see you next week for another exciting tale. Below the deep, dark river sticks in the darkness. Beckoning. See you later, everybody. Safe diving. I like talking about this old history stuff because I don't think a lot of the newer people in diving understand how they got where they are right now, that the the communities were at each other's throats and everybody thought they had all the answers. It was fun. It was fun to watch. It was, Grab it your was exciting times. Yes. And uh, I, I hope we're going to explore those days this year on the show. We're going to. Well, hell we're gonna, yeah. We're going to. Get in the Great Dive Podcast time machine this year. I like that. The GT, GDTP <laughs> time machine. It's like the hot tub time machine. Actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I am going to podcast from my hot tub when we go back in the time machine. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. Very nice. <laughs>